Hi everybody, I'm glad that you can join with me in studying God's Word today. I'm grateful that God has safely brought us through another week. We continue with our sermon series through the book of First Peter, and today we're going to look at just two verses from chapter 2, chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12. As you can probably guess though, there's a lot packed into these verses. So far in his letter, Peter has spent a great deal of time reminding us who we are in Christ Jesus, and it's deeply encouraging. He reminds us that we have been chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and sprinkled with the blood of Christ. We've been given new birth into a living hope, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us. Even our trials are proving the genuineness of our faith and will refine us and result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. And even in our trials, we love him and we're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because we're receiving the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. As a group of believers, we are a holy temple in which Jesus lives by his Holy Spirit, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. But Peter doesn't tell us all of these things so that we can sit back and bask in the light of God's goodness to us. Peter reminds us that God has chosen us and sanctified us and set us apart in order to bring others into a relationship with himself. Our lips and our very lives are to declare, not just to God, but to everyone around us, the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Verses 11 and 12 mark a turning point in this letter as Peter moves from exaltation to exhortation, from description to prescription, from who we are to what we are to do. Having explained to his readers their identity as God's people, Peter now begins to instruct them on how to live as God's people in an unbelieving society. And as our own modern society becomes increasingly hostile towards people who believe anything passionately, Peter's instructions here are vitally important for us. Let's have a look at what he says, chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the Gentiles that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is God's word. As I said, these verses form a turning point in Peter's letter. Having spent a chapter and a half describing who we are, Peter now turns to how we are to act. But notice how gently he does this. He begins, dear friends. Actually, the NIV is a bit weak here. Peter uses the term with which we begin our marriage services, dearly beloved. He's appealing to them out of love. As one Bible commentator says, here is the advice of a friend 
one who genuinely loves you and aims at nothing other than your good. It is because I love you that I urge you. What is known to stem from love can be readily received and accepted. In the rest of his letter, Peter will address various areas of our lives, particularly within an unbelieving society. He will describe how we are to live as citizens, how we are to live in the workplace, how we are to live in our marriage, how we are to live in church. But verses 11 and 12 really form an overarching introductory summary to all those other themes. Peter gives us three pictures here of how we are to act as God's new people in an unbelieving world. He gives us the pictures of strangers, soldiers, and shining lights. Let's have a look at each of those in turn. The first picture that Peter uses to describe how to live in an unbelieving world is that of strangers. The first part of verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. Remember, in the very first verse of this letter, Peter addressed his readers as God's elect, strangers in the world. And in verse 17 of that same chapter, Peter said, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Peter describes us as resident aliens in the world. That's not little green men or little green women. It's a technical term that we still use today. In fact, some of you may be resident aliens in South Africa or in the country in which you find yourself today. You're not a tourist, but you're not a citizen either. You live here. You're here on a student visa or a work visa or a temporary resident permit. You're part of society. You have a job. You know the language. You're not like a tourist who comes and moves around from place to place, taking in the sights, blocking up the traffic around Camps Bay and Table Mountain every December, not knowing the language, relying on someone else to translate and do all the talking for you. No, you're a resident. You have a job here. You're part of society. You know the language. You have friends and neighbours who are in relationship with you. On the one hand, you're a resident, you're not a tourist, but on the other hand, you're still not a citizen. You haven't assimilated, you haven't given up your citizenship. So, even though your neighbours know you and like you, they still find you a little strange because you don't share all of their values, you don't share all of their customs, you don't salute the flag, you don't sing the national anthem, you have some customs of your own, Maybe you celebrate the 4th of July or Thanksgiving. Christmas and birthdays and graduations look a little different in your family. You're different. It also means because you're not a citizen, you don't enjoy all of the privileges of full citizenship. And also, because you're here on a passport, it means you're not expected to stay forever. That is the picture that Peter gives us here. Christians are not citizens of this world. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes explicitly, Our citizenship is in heaven, 
and we eagerly await a Saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Last time we saw how Peter describes us as God's holy nation. You and I have a second passport, a primary passport, and under nationality it says, people of God. George Schultz was the American Secretary of State a few years back, and whenever a new ambassador was appointed, George would call them into his office to chat with him or her, and he had a sneaky test for them. Schultz had a large globe in his office, and he would say to a new ambassador, go over to the globe and show me your country. And the ambassador would go to the globe and try as quickly as possible to find the country to which they were being sent, India, China, Pakistan. At one point, George Schultz's good friend, Mike Mansfield, was appointed as ambassador to Japan, and even he didn't escape the test. Schultz said to him, go show me your country. This time, though, Mike Mansfield walked over to the globe and put his hand firmly on the United States and said, that's my country. Mike Mansfield knew that while he would be living and working in Japan, he was not a citizen of Japan. He was an American citizen, and he was held to the laws of that country. I think that this picture that Peter gives us here holds both a challenge and a comfort for us. On the challenge side, I need to ask myself, how many of the world's values have I perhaps assimilated? Do the books that I read and the movies that I watch and the songs that I listen to reflect the value of the world or the values of God's kingdom? This present crisis is actually a good test for me to see whether perhaps I've not assimilated too much into the world. Am I totally devastated by the fact that life is not what it once was? Or was I perhaps not too attached to this life to begin with? My colleague Eddie Larkman puts it this way, If you think this world is your home, and this short life is all you've got, then the materialism and selfishness and hedonism of Western culture makes perfect sense. How else would you live except to get all the comfort you can in this moment, because this is all there is? No wonder people are so anxious and stressed. All of their eggs are in the broken basket of this world. But if you believe the things Peter has been saying in chapter 1 about our inheritance kept safe for us by God, if you believe you have an eternity with Christ in glory, if you believe this world is not our final destination but a journey that leads home, then you're set free from demanding that this world gives you everything your heart desires. You're freed from being devastated when this world fails to deliver all you'd like. You didn't expect it to. But far from that making you despair, it simply sharpens your hope, your eager expectation of the grace to be brought to you when Christ returns. And that leads to the comfort side. I need to remind myself that, as the old hymn puts it, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And that can give us great encouragement in this crisis, even if the very worst should happen, 
as the Anglican Digest puts it, we live as those who are on a journey home, a home we know will have the lights on and the door open and our Father waiting for us when we arrive. That means in all adversity, our worship of God is joyful, our life is hopeful, our future is secure. There is nothing we can lose on earth that can rob us of the treasures God has given us and will give us. The second picture that Peter gives us to describe how to live in an unbelieving world is that of a soldier. The second part of verse 11. I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. What are these sinful human desires? Well, Peter tells us a little later on in chapter 4 where he writes this. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves, notice again the military language, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. The New Testament sometimes speaks of fleshly desires. So remember earlier this week in one of our devotions, we had a look at Galatians chapter 5, where Paul writes, The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice that there are far more than just bodily sins here. There are attitudes and thoughts. Why are we to not give in to these desires? Well, Peter says that these desires war against our souls. When he speaks of soul here, he's not referring to some inner part of us that is detached from the rest of us, our pure spirits trapped in an impure body. No, he's speaking about the central part of who we are, this part of us which directs everything else. He's speaking about our whole self. Remember back in chapter 1, Peter told us, For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls, your very selves. Right now, even in the midst of trials, God's Holy Spirit is working in us and through us to make us more like Jesus. Or not, as the case may be. You see, this verse reminds us, as Jesus warned us in John chapter 10, that we have an enemy who seeks only to steal and kill and destroy. The writer C.S. Lewis once wrote these very sobering words in his book Mere Christianity. He said this, Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, 
the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to the one state or the other. Each day and each moment of each day, you and I are either receiving the salvation of our souls, becoming beautiful and glorious, becoming more like Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit, or we are doing ourselves spiritual damage by giving in to sinful human desires that wage war against our souls and make us ugly, less than the glorious people God intends us to be. In our own context right now, it would actually be very easy for us to give in to sinful desires. Perhaps you have a bit more time on your hands than you usually do. Maybe you're stuck alone at home, it's easy to engage in destructive habits. You feel the need for a bit of a lift. Life is so difficult at the moment. You're stressed. You're anxious. You want some short-term relief. Peter urges us not to give in. So how do we do this practically? We'll probably look at this again later in our series, but just three things briefly. Firstly, in this verse, Peter calls us to abstain or avoid or keep away from. It's actually in the present tense to continually keep away from, to not let yourself indulge in any of these at any time. I've told you the story before about an eccentric millionaire who advertised for a new chauffeur and three men quickly applied for the job. And he asked them a number of questions about their characters and their backgrounds. And then he asked them, if you were driving my car on a country road and we had to drive along a road next to a cliff edge, how far away from the edge of the cliff could you drive my car? And the first man said, well, I could drive your car within a meter of the cliff edge. And the second man replied, well, I think I could drive your car within 30 centimeters of the cliff edge. And the third man replied, Sir, I would drive as far away from that cliff edge as possible. And the millionaire said to him, You're hired. Peter tells us to avoid, to keep as far away as possible from sinful desires that wage war against our soul. The writer of the book of Proverbs warns us in Proverbs chapter 6, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Too many people have found out too late the answer to that question is no. Secondly, Peter reminds us to keep our minds on the things of God. 
In verse 12, he reminds us again about the coming day when God will visit us. And back in chapter 1, he told us, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As resident aliens in the world, it's important for us to keep on reminding ourselves of God's truth and perspective on things through his word. And thirdly, we're to grow in our relationship with Christ. A little earlier in this chapter, Peter said, Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I heard about a science professor who asked his class how he could remove the air from a glass beaker. And some of the students suggested that they use a strong vacuum, but the professor pointed out that that might shatter the jar. The students ummed and ahed about the question for a while before the professor simply picked up a jug of water and filled the beaker with water, thereby displacing all of the air in the beaker. The key to overcoming the evil desires that war against our souls is not primarily to focus on them and to try and get rid of them. The key to overcoming them is to replace them with a fresh love for Jesus. Psalm 51 is the psalm of confession that David prayed after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And in verse 12 of that psalm, David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. It wasn't just that David was feeling bad about his sin, but rather that losing the joy of his salvation led him to sin in the first place. The reason that he sought acceptance and comfort and unconditional love in the arms of Bathsheba was because he wasn't finding acceptance and comfort and unconditional love in the arms of God. And so, in fact, experiencing sinful human desires is often a warning indicator light to us that our relationship with God is not as strong as it should be. And so may I encourage us in this week that lies ahead to do the daily devotions, to read good Christian books, to listen to good Christian music, to grow in our relationship with Jesus that will keep us from evil. The third picture that Peter uses to describe how to live in an unbelieving world is that of a shining light. Verse 12. Live such good lives among the Gentiles that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter is reflecting on the words he heard Jesus speak in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Remember, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And that, too, was spoken in the context of false accusation. Just before that, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
Jesus anticipated that his followers would experience persecution for his sake, and Peter and his readers were beginning to experience that for themselves. We're not a hundred percent sure, but it seems that Peter lived at the time of the Emperor Nero. This letter was probably written before Nero's empire-wide persecution of Christians, but we know from reading this letter that persecution has begun. You see, when Christianity first began, it was considered to be a sect within Judaism. Remember that all the first disciples were Jewish. And the Romans had a very special way of dealing with the Jewish people. Usually, whenever Rome conquered another nation, they insisted that that nation worship Roman gods, which wasn't much of a problem for the conquered nations, because most of them believed in a whole lot of gods anyway. However, there was one exception, and that was the Jewish people. The Romans quickly learned that the Jews would never worship Roman gods. As one writer puts it, the Jews were fanatically loyal to the one true God and were ready to turn their homeland into a blood-soaked wilderness before they would acknowledge any other God. And so the Romans made an exception when it came to the Jewish people. It was the only exception they ever made. Judaism became known as a religio licita, a legal religion recognized by Rome. Now, as I said, initially Christianity was regarded as a sect within Judaism, and so it too had the status of a religio licita. But the Jewish people soon made it quite clear that Christianity had nothing to do with them, thank you very much. They didn't consider it to be just a sect within Judaism. They considered it to be a heresy. And so Christianity became a religio illicita, an illegal religion. And this meant that Christians were soon persecuted. The reasons for persecution were very interesting. Christians were really misunderstood. Their enemies accused them of atheism. You see, in that society, it was inconceivable not to have an image of your God. Christians had no images of their God. So that must mean that Christians didn't worship a God at all. They must be atheists. Christians were accused of being antisocial. As we saw last time, they wouldn't go along to one of the main entertainments of the day, the gladiatorial contests in the arenas. They wouldn't go to watch the lewd plays at the theatres. Christians wouldn't go along to a restaurant with friends because the meat that they served at the restaurant would have been sacrificed to an idol. It was even difficult to go and visit someone in hospital because you'd have the pagan priests going up and down the aisles muttering incantations. And so because Christians wouldn't do a lot of these things, they were considered to be aloof and rude. They were called haters of mankind. Christians were accused of immorality and even of incest. You see, they held these love feasts. Today we would call it communion. But they held love feasts with their brothers and sisters, and people suspected that these were sexual orgies. Christians were accused of cannibalism because at their love feasts they ate flesh and drank blood. Above all, Christians were accused of sedition because no Christian would worship the emperor 
and burn a pinch of incense and declare that Caesar was Lord. For Christians, only Jesus was Lord. So all of this misunderstanding created a very negative stereotype when it came to the word Christian. And what could these early Christians do about these false accusations? They couldn't take out an advert in the local newspaper refuting all these claims and setting the record straight. They couldn't initiate a court case. To Peter, there was only one way to refute these false accusations, and that was to live such good lives as to undermine the stereotype, to demonstrate the accusations were unfounded. There's a story about Plato, who, when told that a certain man had been making slanderous charges against him, declared, I will live in such a way that no one will believe what he says. And that was Peter's solution, too. Folk, you and I live in a world that is rapidly gaining, sometimes justifiably, sometimes not, some very negative stereotypes about Christians. The word Christian, by and large, does not have positive connotations in our world. What are we to do? Argue? Fight? Bemoan our persecuted status? No, we're to live such good lives that nobody will believe the rumours. The word that Peter uses for good here is the Greek word kalos, which really means lovely, fine, attractive, winsome. Our conduct is to be something beautiful and refreshing to behold. What does this look like practically? My colleague Eddie Larkman puts it this way. It means serving. It means being the person everyone would love to have as their neighbour. It means being the committee member who's known as a peacemaker rather than a troublemaker. It means being the doctor who's known for extra kindness. It means being the plumber who goes the extra mile in helpfulness. It means being the teacher the kids find approachable. It means being the old person's favourite carer because you're always patient with them, always have a smile. It means being the member of your circle, the running club, the choir, the orchestra, who always has time for others, who's not wrapped up in themselves. This is gospel ministry as mundane and normal and everyday as you can get. There's no place, no moment you'll ever be where you aren't called to shine a light for Christ, showcasing the goodness of God. Well, we've covered quite a lot in just these two verses today. Peter tells us to avoid evil and do good, not just so that we will benefit, although we certainly will, but so that others might be brought into a relationship with God. In 1805, a number of Indian chiefs and warriors met in council at Buffalo Creek, New York, to hear a presentation of the Christian gospel by a Mr. Cram from the Boston Missionary Society. After the sermon, a response was given by Red Jacket, one of the leading chiefs. His speech was documented and preserved as one of the best examples of North American oratory. It was called 
religion for the white man and the red. And in the speech, Red Jacket makes a number of observations about Christianity and traditional Native American religion. But near the end of his speech, Red Jacket said this to Mr. Cram, very sobering words. Brother, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbours. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider again what you have said. May God grant that in this new week ahead we might live as strangers, fight as soldiers, and shine as lights, so that although those around us accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds, turn to God, and join us in glorifying him on the day he visits us. God bless you.